Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Well, good morning. My name is Jason Myers, and I'm really excited to be with you this morning as we finish out a series that we've started, seems like a while now, uh, back in the fall. And so we are going to be finishing out our sent out series this morning. Uh, I want to start with a little quiz. Uh, There's a little picture of a map on the screen. I wanted to see if anyone knows what it is. Anyone? It's okay if you don't. If you're thinking maybe that's the world's worst road trip ever, you'd be partially right. And if you thought that maybe that's where the person giving the sermon has lived, you would also be right. This right here is a map it is super boring. It is the Midwest. I can say that. I'm from there. Just a bunch of corn. Winters are really cold and tough. We move here. We don't move back. That's all we have to say. So um, it is boring. Not a lot of highlights, geographically speaking. Um, and so I've had the opportunity or the challenge, depending on how you look at it, to move several times over the course of my life. Uh, in high school, my father got a new job in Michigan, and we moved from Toledo, uh, Ohio, all the way to Kalamazoo, Michigan, where I finished out the last year and a half of my high school. And then I moved to Cedarville to go to undergrad in Ohio and then moved back to Grand Rapids, Michigan for grad school for another three years. And then after that, I'm, Lisa and I, we were together at this point in the journey, uh, we moved to Wilmore, Kentucky, where I started my PhD program in New Testament. So why did we move? Why all those movements uh, in our life? You may say, well, it was school. You were kind of forced to do it. Yes, partially. But part of it is a calling that I believe that God placed on my life all the way back in high school, which was to serve God through some form of ministry uh, and teaching. And that has changed over the course of many, many years. And that unfolded in a particular way to doing what I get to do now. And I'm grateful for that and for Lisa, who supported me along the way. And what's interesting about moving multiple times, and you see that there on the map, is that you learn some things. Each of the moves was like uh, you learn some things. And I'm not just talking about the little things like downsizing, like we don't need to move that lamp from this place to that place. We'll just get a new one when we get there. Uh, We've never opened that box. We're not going to move it. We're not going to pay the movers to move it. Not worth it. But you also learn that moves also give you a chance to reset, to change things up in your life. Moves are good when you realize that there's a chance to have new schedules, new rhythms, new practices, a chance to reconfigure priorities. Practices and habits that maybe you didn't like can be left behind and new rhythms can be started. Movement allows us to do that. And maybe you find yourself this morning in the midst of a great reset. The last 18 months has been really, really hard. We're in the midst of the largest job recession. We've seen month after month, people are resetting major things in their lives, like what they do with the majority of their lives. Maybe you've recently moved here to Greensboro, or maybe you've been here a while, but life is changing. And although that can be a scary thing, and although that can be a thing that gives us trouble, I think it can also give us an opportunity for reforming the vision, purpose, and ultimately God's mission on our lives. I think we find that today also in Acts chapter 20. If you heard the long passage being read, um, it's a story also about movement. 
And it coincides with the end of a journey for Paul. Paul is moving on from Asia Minor, and he's moving to Jerusalem. And Paul is in the midst of a shakeup himself, a resetting. And we've been in the series called Sent Out, and we've been looking at the movement of God's mission through the life of Paul in the mid part of the first century. And we've followed Paul through a lot of places. I have another map on the screen. We have followed Paul through a series of cities like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth and Ephesus. And Paul has been moving from city to city, propelled by the kingdom and mission of God. But do you remember how the story started? I know it's been a good number of weeks. It was back in Acts chapter 16, where this whole journey was started by a prompting of the Holy Spirit, a vision, and a calling from God to go. And Paul was sent out. Every story we've looked at in this series has been prompted by the movement of the mission of God. And Paul couldn't stay put for long. What we see is that we find ourselves at the end of this journey, and it's a journey that marks the closing of a significant chapter in Paul's life, a period of about three and a half years. Paul takes this moment of movement as an opportunity to address the elders, his friends in Ephesus, that he is leaving behind. And today we get Paul's farewell address to some Ephesian elders in a city called Miletus. And Paul's address here is really important because I think it has something to say to us today as followers of Jesus and as members of this particular community. And so take a look with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Notice here it says, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Why are we in Miletus? Well, a few verses earlier, we learned that Paul is on the move to Jerusalem for the next major stage of his life, and it's not going to go well. I also think that in the heat of that the heat in Ephesus is still too hot on the heels of that riot that we looked at a few weeks ago that, that Ben Wall preached on. So I think it might be actually too dangerous for Paul to meet these people in Ephesus. So they meet at a neutral location, a new location, the city of Miletus. And I've got a picture on the screen of what we think the city of Miletus looked like in Paul's day. Notice how the boats would come in and dock and there'd be a beach. And this is kind of the scene we're seeing unveloped here um, in Acts chapter 20. I have another picture. Uh, this is of the actual archaeological site uh, of Miletus, uh, if you were to go there uh, today. And what I want you to do is I want you to imagine Paul getting off a boat, meeting some friends, standing with them, and imagine that conversation as he gives them this message. Paul wanted to say goodbye to his Ephesian friends, and so he calls them to this nearby city to give them a final word before he departs. He knows this community really, really well, and I think it's what contributes to this really emotional speech. I don't know if you notice all the reference to tears in the passage. Uh, it's very, very emotional. In the midst of the movement, he wants to remind them of God's mission. And so take a look at verse 18. Paul begins by reminding them of his work with them over the last three years. He says in verse 19, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. I find, what I find interesting here is what Paul highlights. He highlights, uh, of all the things he could talk about, the things that he did with them, um, it's not raiding, raising Eutyche from the dead. It's not the magic 
kind of napkins, handkerchiefs. It's not any of the miracles. It's his humility and his tears. What a reaction as well to the trials that Paul faced. We've, we've followed him through a series of really unfortunate events through his life. And he responds to this through humility and tears. Paul was beaten. He was jailed. He was almost killed a few times. And what was his response? It wasn't anger or bitterness or scorn or I can't believe what they did to me. No, it was humility and compassion. He mentions tears. He cares so deeply for the work of the kingdom that when faced with opposition and rejection, he doesn't become calloused. He becomes compassionate towards them. It strikes me that this is the life of the person Oh, sorry, it strikes me that we shouldn't forget the life of the person who's speaking this. This is Paul, the former zealous persecutor of the church. And I can't help but think he has a measure of grace and mercy because in the opposition, maybe he saw his former self. Maybe he looked at them and said, that was me. And the grace and mercy of God and his radical love came even to him in the midst of that. And that forced him and compelled him to be a much more compassionate person. So that the person who used to be the one throwing people in prison was now himself being thrown in prison. The person who used to persecute the church is now also facing persecution. As he says in verse 24, he wants to complete the task of the Lord that the Lord Jesus had given him, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And I think this is a grace that had come to him in a profound way and had transformed his life, and he believed it could transform anyone else's, opposition included. Paul's aim is to bear witness to this joyous news that comes even to one's own enemies. And I think this shaped Paul's posture towards those enemies of the church. God's grace had included him. How could he do anything else? How can Paul respond in this way? And, and a, a harder question, how might we respond in this way? Paul gives us a challenging teaching about life and death. Take a look at verses 22 and 24. And now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prisons and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. What's really interesting about this is that Paul tells the Ephesians he isn't running away from them because it's too hard. Besides, as Paul says, hey, that's, that's a really hard place to work. I got to find a new environment. This is just getting too difficult for me. In fact, he says the opposite. He says the Spirit is telling him, that it is going to be at least equally as hard going forward, if not more. More prison time awaits Paul. And yet Paul is running towards those events, not away from them. Paul has no other option. It says that he is captivated by the Spirit, or your translations might say compelled by the Spirit. It's this idea of being taken captive and driven in a way that one has no control over. And for Paul, this is his new destination of Jerusalem. And this shouldn't surprise us because all through this section of Acts, we've seen the Spirit 
driving God's kingdom mission. It's the spirit that opens doors. It's the spirit that puts people where they need to be. And hardships and persecution do not cause detours to God's mission. This isn't as if Paul is navigating through the easiest places to work. In fact, it's the opposite. Paul may not be certain of what might happen ahead of him, but he is certain of the spirit who moves with him. And that is a powerful, powerful difference in his life. You see, as Christians, if we face similar obstacles today, what might our response be? Too often it seems that it's, that it's Christians who are arrogant and cruel in the face of their enemies. It seems more frequent today that we find Christians willing to fight in ways that are counter to the gospel of Jesus. Paul doesn't do that here. So let me paint us a story of 2021. Let's say the church is facing radical challenges to its life and witness. Let's grant that life can be hard for Christians in various contexts. Let's go even further and say, what if it gets worse? What if? What if? Those fears can run rampant, and far too often those fears can be weaponized by others to make us fearful. And if the gospel of Jesus does anything, if the gospel of the kingdom does anything, it ought to prepare us to die well. As one theologian has put it, I have a quote on the screen. This is from Stanley Hauerwas. Our hope in life beyond death is, is a hope made possible not by some general sentiment, sentimental belief in life after death, but by our participation in the life of Christ. It's hard to remember that Jesus did not come to make us safe, but rather to make us disciples, citizens of God's new age. Friends, the gospel of the kingdom changes everything from how we view our lives, but especially how we view our deaths. The gospel tells us that the worst thing to happen to us will never be the last thing to happen to us. Because God's kingdom is coming and resurrection awaits. And this changes everything. It's this profound reality that changes the calculus of Christian existence. If there is no resurrection, self-preservation is the highest human value. Pursue safety at all costs. Because you only have this one life, and after that, zip, it's done. But resurrection is the game changer. Jesus proclaims a new way through his own resurrection. Because if there is life after death in the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, then I can live by an utterly different calculus. And this is what has radically changed the early church. They realized that the biggest fear in their life was not death or the persecution of their enemies, but life apart from God's kingdom. That is what motivated them. And this enabled them to live their lives in radical ways and respond to their enemies vastly differently than the way we do today. A few weeks ago, we celebrated as a church All Saints Day on November 1st. It starts on the evening of October 31st, just as the kiddos are coming to ask for the candy. And this is when this church, the church in its historic position has celebrated this day. What is All Saints Day? It's a little bit akin to what Paul is talking about here, about valuing the gospel more than their own lives. It seems to have begun in Ireland, perhaps as far back as the year 300, and by the 9th century was an official 
feast day of the church. And it was dedicated, it was a day dedicated to remembering all the saints who have led the way in death before us. And it was started at a particular time in the life of the church when they were beset with persecution. And as a time to remember those who had faithfully followed Christ to their death, often through torture. The saints faced incredible persecution, horrific evils. And in the face of that, they faithfully met their deaths because like Paul, they considered the gospel of the kingdom as more important than their own lives. Here's an astounding reality to consider. You are no different than those saints. You are a holy one of God. We have the same spirit, we await the same kingdom, and we serve the same Savior. If I can venture a controversial point, we consider our lives worth something. Consider this, when we feel that our lives are under attack, do we look more like the rioters in Ephesus or the bold humility of Paul here? Just to be clear, only one of those stories was captivated by the Spirit of God. The other was under the influence of an entirely different spirit and an entirely different kingdom. As Ben reminded us two weeks ago, what agitates us to riot reveals the idols in our lives. That's what's motivating our existence. What we need is a work of God in us and through us to reevaluate what means something to us. Because whatever we determine to be valuable, we will devote our lives to defending to our death. Church, may it be the gospel of the kingdom and nothing less. Not a nation, not a mythic past, not a style of life, but only the kingdom of God. This will change Christian existence and the life to come. We see that throughout Paul's time with the Ephesian elders, he warns them as well and reminds them of God's call on their life. What's interesting here is that he warns them about attacks both from the outside, outside the church and even from within. He says some threats are actually internal to the church. Now, I hate horror movies. If you've ever been around me, I will not watch one. I will walk the opposite direction. Um, I don't want to watch the trailer. I just don't like being scared in my life. It says a lot about who I am. Um, but there's this famous scene that I know of where someone realizes that the call is coming from inside the house, right? That the threat is no longer out there. The threat is inside. And so it's gone from bad to worse, right? That's a little bit what Paul is envisioning here. He says, all right, you may have seen the attacks from the outside, but there also are attacks from the inside as well. Be on alert. He says, be alert. What are we to make of Paul's warning here? It seems in the midst of movement and change, there's a potential to lose track of the mission of God. So there's great opportunity of resetting and revaluing, but there's also a chance of getting off track. Paul's warning here seems to have come true in a profound way. You see, we have a whole other set of letters in the New Testament called the pastoral epistles that were also written by Paul. And there he has advice and encouragement and counsel for a new young pastor in Ephesus named Timothy. Now, we don't have time to go through all of them. You're welcome. But I want to take a quick look right at the beginning of 1 Timothy and see what Paul mentions. It's on the screen. It's really interesting. 
He says this to Timothy, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and they've turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Notice what Paul reminds Timothy of. If you read back in Acts 20, Timothy's there in this scene. And it's if Paul says to him, remember when we were on that beach in Miletus? Remember what I told you. I warned you. You see, Paul's warning had come true, and now Timothy had a job to do. Paul's advice to Timothy is to go to Ephesus and to teach the elders. And this isn't going to go easy because as we find out later in the letter, Timothy is younger than the people he's been sent to teach. They have more experience than he does. But Paul seems less interested here in experience and self-confidence than he does in the truth. Notice what Paul is concerned with, teaching. Paul's advice is that distortions can arise and it takes a community, not a lone ranger. That this direction and mission of the church requires the community to come together. And that Paul and Timothy and the other elders are the collective witness that show the gospel through true leadership and true teaching. Timothy had a hard task to cultivate a community where those who are older and those who are younger are willing to listen to each other together for the sake of mission and the integrity of the church. And that's not an always an easy, easy task for any community, especially then and certainly now. This is part of what Paul wanted to remind Timothy while they were on the beach at, in Miletus in Acts 20. At the conclusion of the speech with his Ephesian elders, we have what I consider, personally, to be one of the most moving scenes of Scripture. I love this passage. Look at verse 36. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. This scene ends with deep emotional tears for one another. They are going to miss their friend. Paul is a church planner. He is a pastor. He is a missionary, but he's also their friend. They spent three and a half years together. I relate to these verses a lot, actually. Earlier, I talked about how much we've moved, and I've seen this scene play out again and again and again. At our church in Kentucky, we called the month of May the crying season because that's when seminary graduations happened and people would be moved to new pastoral appointments or to new ministry uh, opportunities. And having been in Kentucky for five years during my PhD program, we got to see a lot of these happen every May. When God, when God moved people to new locations, there was a saying goodbye, and it was hard. We saw this in Kentucky in, uh, over the course of five years, and we walked through our own in 2015 when God graciously provided a job for me here in Greensboro, the job that moved us here. And I remember grieving deeply, leaving that community and dear friends and partners in ministry. In some ways, it felt really unfair to have invested so much to be moved to a new location. 
Maybe you've had to do that too. I actually pray that you have. You see, here's the thing about God's mission and movement. It doesn't come easy. It actually comes through tears. Transitions require grieving, and there is loss to be grieved, even in good things. God's kingdom unites people together in community around his son. And as a people, we form deep and lasting bonds. I hope you have had the experience of this. But God's mission also requires calling those people to new places. There's this bittersweet reality of Christian community. We have to hold two tensions together. We have to be radically rooted and committed to one another like family, but also willing to hold that loose enough to go where God is calling us. We have to remain both steadfast without becoming stagnant, and that is a tough tension to grasp. The mission of the kingdom is captured in these words of Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. I think there's actually an interesting translation of that if you put it in the context of Acts 20, which it is more blessed to be sent than to stay. That's what Paul's talking about. That's the giving Paul's talking about in Acts 20. It's him being sent away. Now, this isn't movement just for movement's sake. Remember, Paul isn't saying I'm bored or tired or just need an easier job with more pay. That's not it at all. This is a movement propelled by God himself that moves him from a place that he maybe wanted to have stayed, but realizes that God's mission is moving him forward. And how we leave a community says a lot about what we value about that community, whether it's a job, a relationship, or even a church. And that's where I think today's story in Acts comes in. I think we learn from Luke and Paul here about God's mission in community. They leave one another in tears. What would it take to become so embedded in this community that if you had to depart, there would be sorrow, that there would be tears, that we can't believe you're leaving. What would it take? Here's a challenge. How do we become so invested in a community so that when you leave, it's hard? Stay with me. I know it sounds a little counterintuitive. Like, why would I want to invite sadness into my life? How do we become so invested in a community so that when you leave, it's difficult? It doesn't come by being lightly connected and floating through friendships and community. It comes through opening up your life to others in significant ways where you peel back the good layers and walk through some really hard stuff together. I think it also comes by serving together, by showing up week after week and saying, how can I help serve here? It's through those practices, these rhythms, that over time, your life gets interwoven into the lives of others in this community. And this is God's greatest desire, is that your life becomes interwoven into his life and into the life of his kingdom community again and again. I think we're in one of those, as we think about today, I think we're in one of those massive once-a-generation movements where things are all up in the air. I think it's also a time where God is rearranging our lives. And how ought the church look in this historical moment being recorded in time? What will people remember in the generations that come after us? Will the church in the ages to come 
be encouraged by how the church is living today? And will our example in this life be worthy of others to follow in their time? I want to put a map back up on the screen. I'm not sure where God is calling you. It might not be to a new state, a new country, a new place. Maybe it's here in Greensboro. But God is calling you somewhere. It's less a question of if and more a question of where is God calling you. Now, that might not mean a move. That might not mean selling your house. But it may mean reaching out to someone where God has sent you a mission. The question is, can we, like Paul and the early Christians, be captive to what the Spirit is doing in our midst? Maybe God is at work to send you somewhere. And our greatest desire at Redeemer is not to keep growing and growing and growing so we can boast about our numbers of people. Our greatest goal is that God's kingdom will advance by us sending people out on mission in the kingdom. We want you to be sent out. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.